And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David, calls him, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, City Church. It's good to be up here at my regularly scheduled time. Um, and it's good to be uh, gathered together with you as we can open up God's Word and seek to learn from Him this morning. Uh, it's a great opportunity that we have. Um, the scriptures say that uh, we don't actually deserve to come into God's presence. It's by His grace that He allows us to do that. It's by His grace that He calls us uh, out of this world, out of our brokenness, uh, to come, to hear, uh, to hear Him speak to us, to pray to Him, to worship Him. And so it is a great honor and opportunity for us to be able to be together this morning and to dig in. And as we do so, uh, it's also important for us to remember by what power we're able to do this, right? Not only that God invites us, but he empowers us. His Holy Spirit works within us to show us his word and show us what we can learn from it. Uh, so before we begin, it's good for us to start by praying and asking God to be with us. So let's do that now. Most Heavenly Father, as, uh, as we've just said, as we come into your presence, as we open up your word, uh, we cry out to you, we pray. We ask that you would remember your promises to us, that as two or three are gathered together, that you would send your Holy Spirit to be amongst us. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that you would show us wonderful things in your word, and that you would transform us by your grace. 
And we pray all of this in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. All right. Um, I apologize for my voice. Uh, too much yelling yesterday at the soccer game. I'm losing it a little bit. Um, it was a great game. Um, but uh, so you don't need to adjust your television sets if you're at home. Um, uh, but uh, today we're going to be continuing a series uh, that we've been working on for the last couple of months leading up into the time of Easter. Uh, every year during this time, we're going through a section or a part of the gospel, uh, unpacking what it is uh, to think about Jesus and why, who he is and why he's come into this world. And that's exactly what uh, the Apostle Mark has been helping us to understand. The first entire part of the book of Mark is all about this question, who is Jesus? Who is this one who has come? Unpacking his identity, unpacking uh, what he claims about himself and what others have claimed about him. Uh, and the second half of the book of Mark transitions, and it begins to ask the question, not only who he is, but why has he come into this world? Why is it important that Jesus has come? What difference does that make to our lives? And what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is that at this point in the book, we've entered into a long section. In fact, it's, it's an entire third of the book of Mark that covers the last week of Jesus's life. And in that, Jesus has been teaching, he's been preaching, he's had a triumphal parade where he's entered into the city, he's overthrown tables, uh, he has done a lot of things in this last week. And this week, we're kind of focusing in on uh, a lot of what he did that week, and that was that he sat in the courtyards of the temple and he taught the people. He helped them understand these main questions that we've been talking about. Who is he and why is he coming to this world? And that's exactly what we see in the passage that we're looking at this morning. Uh, it's the final week of Jesus' life, as I said. He's teaching in the temple, um, and this particular day, we're told in this chapter that he gets a series of uh, three situations or three contexts with three different questions that are asked. Um, and the truth is, I could easily preach an entire sermon or multiple sermons on each one of these different sections. Uh, so we're not going to be able to cover everything that's in here. Um, God's word is like that. It's unexhaustible in that way. Um, but I think and sometimes it's more important to kind of see how different sections fit together and how the ultimate message of what's being talked about uh, is being driven home by seeing the kind of the larger context of this. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing this morning. Uh, I want to dive in and I want to see exactly what it is that the Lord is teaching us. And I want to do so by looking at these, different, these three different sections uh, individually and looking at the questions that are asked in each of these sections and then how Jesus is driving us to a larger realization or a larger answer to some of his greater questions and how this can actually impact our lives and changes in our world. And so that's what I want us to do now. First of all, I want to dig into this first section. And what we see here in verses 18 through 27 is the first situation that Jesus encounters. He's teaching in the temple. And what we're told is that a group of Sadducees come up to Jesus and ask him a question. Um, now, who are the Sadducees? It's important to understand kind of the context of what's going on and who the people are that are asking. Uh, the Sadducees were wealthy, upper-class aristocrats during that time uh, with family ties to uh, the long history of the priesthood. So they were, they were the, the clan or the group that was tied to the priesthood over time. Um, and these were kind of like the coastal elites of that culture without the coast, Right. Uh, these were the guys who were the high academics. These were the guys who uh, studied um, and were kind of dug into kind of a lot of the things that were going on around the world at the time. Uh, they were sophisticated and modern, and they had become thoroughly kind of uh, uh, ingratiated into or consumed by the thought or uh, in love with the idea of Hellenistic culture. They engaged a lot with the kind of the, not just the Jewish culture at the time, but the larger culture that had permeated the entire Roman world. 
and most of that was Greek culture, right? Uh, the Romans, at, by their military strength, had captured the known world at the time, but it was Athens, it was the Greeks who had actually implemented and uh, forwarded the kind of the, the worldview, the thought process, the ideals, the philosophies that it controlled life. And these Sadducees had gotten really interested in that. In fact, it became kind of the context for how they thought about almost everything. Um, uh, they were, and as a result of this, they had chosen to only hold uh, to the first five books of the Bible, and this is known as the Pentateuch. Um, and so that's the only section that they considered to be Scripture, and they rejected all the rest of the Bible as being just kind of like uh, uh, periphery or not really uh, real or not accountable to the way that they lived their lives. So you kind of get the sense uh, they believed in God in this way, um, but they did not believe and they rejected the idea of things like miracles or a judgment day or angels or the afterlife or any belief, as we're told here in this passage, in a physical resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in that. In other words, they were religious, they believed in God, um, but their religion was a kind of a stripped-down ethical version uh, without any kind of supernatural element to it of the Jewish faith at the time. You're going to get a sense that this is who they are. Uh, this is very similar in many ways to modern fundamentalistic uh, liberal Christians on one side of things. Uh, they uh, are religious, they believe in God, but uh, in many ways they reject the idea of miracles. They reject the idea of a resurrection. Uh, they reject the idea of uh, kind of a, uh, a worldview in which God has actually spoken to us and given us ways that we are to live. Like it's just kind of more of a metaphor for life and how we're supposed to live, right? Uh, this is a very common thing, especially where I came from before uh, in an area like Boston where it's been post-Christian for a very long time. Most of the churches there, the larger churches that were there, um, structure-wise, not necessarily attendance, uh, dug into this kind of idea. And many of the seminaries around the world uh, around the country at that time actually believed this as well. So you kind of get this sense that it's very similar to that as well. Um, and uh, they also rejected um, and oftentimes uh, kind of cling to this idea that only the Gospels are what we should look at. All the rest of the Bible is not something that's uh, binding on us. Uh, oftentimes, if you know, people that I've known that have been in these circles will say that the Gospels are uh, the things that give us the kind of metaphors by which we should live our lives, and they kind of believe as well that when Paul showed up on the scene and wrote the letters in the second half, or the majority of the second half of the, the New Testament, that Paul just ruined everything. And so uh, he's someone that we should just ignore and kind of kick out what he believed. And that's oftentimes what you see. Um, they just focus on this one kind of section and in a very particular way. So this gives you a little bit of a context for who the people are who are asking the questions. And in verses 19 through 23, we get a strong sense or a clear sense of the question that they're asking. We're told that the Sadducees, um, I'm going to get that right. I'm going to have to say it a few times today. We're told that the Sadducees came to Jesus and presented him with a question that had to do with the concept of Leverite marriage. Now, what is Leverite marriage? Well, it's exactly kind of how they define it here. In the Old Testament, uh, if uh, a, the husband of a woman were to pass away and that she didn't have any children, uh, it was the responsibility of the husband's brother to actually marry her and to take care of her needs and to actually provide heirs for her so that she would have someone to take care of her uh, after she passed away. Now, this is a super weird thing in our culture for us to think about. There's just no way around that. It's just super weird. But in that culture, where women did not have hardly any kind of availability for finding any kind of income or support outside of a marriage situation, 
it was actually a very loving thing uh, to be placed down. And so you have to see it within that context. And the Sadducees knew this, but also knew the kind of the, uh, they, they take advantage of this kind of uh, this uh, law or kind of regulation that's laid down in the Old Testament, and they come up with this hypothetical story uh, in which uh, they, they portray the situation uh, that this happens to a particular woman seven different times with seven different brothers, and at the end of all of it, she still doesn't have any children, and she dies. So you need to understand, like, this is a woman who had a husband, passed away, and then she married or she was brought in by all, seven of his, all six of his brothers, and then she still didn't have any children, and then she passed away, right? So you kind of give a context there. Uh, and the reason they're doing so, they present this kind of story, this situation that Jesus were told, is because they want to discredit him. Now, the question is, how is this story, as weird as it is, going to discredit Jesus? Um, well, what they're doing here is they're kind of laying a rhetorical trap for him. Um, and this is how that trap works. On the one hand, if Jesus agrees with them and says, yeah, this is a ridiculous uh, story, it's a ridiculous situation, and it's a silly rule, right? Uh, then all of the conservatives in the crowd uh, would reject Jesus and get really angry because he's ignoring or putting aside God's word. So they know that that might happen in that situation. But on the other hand, if Jesus tries to give some kind of roundabout answer to this question, uh, you know, well, the first guy was her real husband and all the rest of them weren't really their real husband, uh, something like that, then they would be, uh, it would entangle him at that part, at that point in some kind of rhetorical, you know, dialogue around this uh, that they think would actually make him look ridiculous and make the entire concept of the resurrection look ridiculous. And every time you hear the Sadducees in this passage uh, mention the word resurrection, what you should hear is like in quotations, the resurrection, right? They don't believe in it. They think it's ridiculous. And they think this story helps them to do that. And they believe as Jesus gets into this, it'll actually make him look ridiculous as well and ultimately discredit him. So that's the situation. They've asked this question. And then we see Jesus's response to this. And Jesus, as we've talked about last week and before, uh, has a particular way of doing kind of verbal jujitsu uh, in which he takes the arguments of his, uh, of his adversaries or those who are asking questions, and he kind of turns it around in a very unique and uh, almost unbelievable way and then presents it back to them in such a way that not only, you know, takes apart their argument but helps them to see something more clearly. And that's exactly what we see here. First of all, uh, Jesus uh, responds to them by rebuking them. Uh, he says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, he says. In verse 24, he says this, and he uses the word planesthi, which is a very powerful Greek word that actually means you are being led astray in this situation. You need to understand what he's doing there. And the question is, how are they being led astray? Well, first of all, he says, because you do not know the scriptures. As we've already seen, the Sadducees had been fascinated with modern culture, and because of that, they had begun to pick and choose what parts of Scripture they liked, and they got, <clears throat> they got rid of this parts of Scripture that they didn't like. Um, and they were very, very practiced in this kind of idea of like just choosing what they did and what they didn't like. Um, and they were very proud of the fact that they were a group of people that had gotten past the kind of the silly superstitions of their people group and actually were modern people and actually believed the things that uh, the culture claimed to be true at the time. And so, again, this is the context of that. And so Jesus claims to them or says to them, you actually don't know the scriptures in this way. And as a result, um, 
what he does is that he kind of presses them on this idea of the resurrection. He goes on to do that, which is a very silly idea in that culture, uh, in that kind of context with these people. And, and it's very common for us to think about this way as well. This, you know, we often think about like those people back there had really ridiculous thought processes. But in our culture today, more and more so, um, the idea of the resurrection, of physical resurrection of the dead, is something that's ridiculous to us as well. How could that be? It doesn't make sense to us. Um, and it's important for us to kind of wrap our heads around that as well. Uh, it is something that we have to think through deeply and actually engage with, even in our world today. Um, and so it is not so far out of the bounds to think about the struggle that is going on between Jesus and these, these scribes over the issue of this kind of physical resurrection. But according to Jesus, as they've rejected this in doing so, they'd actually blinded themselves to the power of God. And the question is, how did they do that? Well, Jesus goes on to unpack or answer their question in a couple of different ways. And through this, it actually helps them to see how they've missed the power of God. First of all, in verse 25, he says, For when they raise from the dead, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now, this is a shocking statement. There's just no way around this. Um, Jesus says very clearly in this passage that when we get to heaven, there's not going to be any marriage. Uh, there's not going to be any giving or taking in marriage. Um, we are going to be like the angels in heaven. That means that we're not going to be tied to one another in that way. Uh, that is not something that he unpacks or describes in a, in a, in a, in a kind of a holistic way. Uh, he just says it very clearly in this way. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of ink that's been spilled around this. Uh, but the, the answer to it ultimately is I just don't know. Um, we have to take Jesus' word in the midst of this. Um, but... In relation to the question that's being asked, it's actually a really important statement. Because uh, if there's no marriage, uh, there's no conundrum in this situation, right? Uh, with this, their entire argument, or the entire argument of the Sadducees begins to fall apart. Uh, because it's all tied to this confusion that what would happen in heaven. And so Jesus immediately takes that kind of piece out of the puzzle. Um, and then he goes on in verse 26 uh, to respond in an even more powerful way. And this is what he does there. What he says is, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, and the God, uh, he is the God of the dead, Jesus says. Uh, not the God of the dead, he is the God of the living. Now, what is that all about? Now, it can be a little bit of a confusing statement to us, but what he's doing here actually made a lot of sense to the Sadducees. Um, he's pointing out that in Exodus 3, when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush, he said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Therefore, the suggestion is that God, in his eyes, these men were actually still very much alive and with him and present and existed. And therefore, he is their God. He is the present God. He is not just the God of the past. Uh, now, again, I, I know that this argument can seem a little bit kind of uh, uh, tortured to us in some ways, but the reality is it had a huge impact on the Sadducees. And the reason it had a big impact on the Sadducees um, is that this argument um, is uh, actually meeting them on their own terms. It's entering into their own story about what reality and what the Scriptures were all about and then reframing it in the light of the larger scope of the Scriptures. Um, in it, Jesus uh, is doing here, he's quoting from one of the five books of the Pentateuch that they held to be scripture, 
And from this passage shows them that the concept of the supernatural world, that life after death, and that the physical resurrection actually made sense within a biblical worldview, right? And make no mistake, what Jesus is confronting here is a worldview issue. It's a worldview issue. If there is an all-powerful creator God that exists in this world, as the scriptures teach, then the idea that life can exist after death, and moreover, uh, that uh, you can have a physical resurrection from the dead, right? Or that miracles could occur in this world. That actually makes a lot of sense if you have an all-powerful God, because he is the one who created us. He's the one who holds our very atoms together in our body, right? The idea that he could raise somebody from the dead is not that far of a stretch. Uh, if he actually created out of nothing our existence, the idea of him recreating us or bringing us back to life is really a no-brainer in that way. And if you believe in God, then you can make that leap in a pretty significant way. A lot of people struggle with this in our culture today around the idea of can miracles exist? Well, uh, that is a really good question, and it's a question that we need to be able to explore in this world. But the real question, the question that has to come before that is does God exist? Because that you cannot answer the question of miracles unless you answer the question of if God exists or not. And that's exactly what Jesus is driving them at here. The real problem is that the Sadducees have chosen to reject God's word and power and cling instead to an alternate worldview that made themselves the arbiters of truth and the reality of God's world instead of God himself. And in doing so, Jesus says that they had been led astray and actually missed the entire point. They'd missed the power of God that the story actually portrays to them. Now, we've spent a lot of time over the last several months, where I have and others have, uh, in talking about the idea of this cultural phenomenon that's going on right now called deconstruction. Um, and a lot of what we said is uh, deconstruction is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. It's good to think deeply about the major questions that are going on in our world. It's good to, uh, to step back and examine what we believe and why we believe, believe these things. Um, uh, it is good to ask questions in this way. Uh, but it's also good to ask, what is your starting point for the journey of asking these questions? Uh, is it what your, our modern culture considers to be uh, ridiculous or offensive? Um, and if so, why should our particular culture's quibbles or offenses um, determine what we believe to be true in this world? The reality is, is that almost every culture around the world has different ideas about what is offensive, has different ideas about what is true has different ideas of things like sex and money and power. Uh, it has different ideas around uh, the idea of authority uh, or the, the supernatural. Um, and in each culture, each one of those cultures has different things that they're offended by in answering or actually exploring those different questions. Uh, in Eastern Europe, under communism, the church looked like a dangerously liberal institution because it was standing up for freedom and individual rights. It was considered to be radically liberal. In our modern secular Western world, the church is often seen as dangerously conservative because it says that there is something more important than our individual freedom in this world and that there is a God who's actually spoken and shown us what life is supposed to be like. And the question is, which one of these quibbles are actually true and how do we decide? On the one hand, is our starting point, on the other hand, is our starting point not just kind of thinking about what the world is around us and what the beliefs are, the objections, but is that starting point to actually come to God's word and take it seriously on its own accord? 
to actually learn what it says and how it says it, why it says the things that it says, and the claims that it makes on its own terms. Is God real? Is he good? Is he trustworthy? Has he revealed himself in this world to us in his word? Who is Jesus? Is he who he claims to be as well? Did he really do the things that he claims to have done? It's only by answering these questions that you can begin to back up and answer these more difficult questions about things that, that we oftentimes get you know, completely overwhelmed by in our culture. We have to be able to start at the right place. How does this affect the way that we see the world around us and the solutions to the problems that we face, the question of human flourishing in this world? Are we willing to not only deconstruct our understanding of something like Christianity and the Bible, but also our own culture's worldview and ask these difficult questions of all of these things and actually come to it in honesty and seek to understand based on what the worldview itself actually claims. And the truth is, these are great questions that are need to be asked and answered. The Bible invites us to struggle with it, invites us to, to ask these difficult questions, invites us to dig in and to explore. But if you really want to know and understand what the biblical worldview is all about and its message, what you can't do is just pick and choose what you like and what you don't like. For to do so is to be led astray, Jesus says and kind of a false approach of, of trying to find the truth within something by twisting the message and the story and ultimately binding yourself to the power of God. It's true is in my life. If you came to me and you had some particular quibbles about me and you didn't take the time to get to know me and ask me questions about myself, get to know my story, understand where I've come from, and you just judge me on the front end, right? There's no way that you can come to the truth of who I am. One of the most famous illustrations of this, I'm re-watching uh, Ted Lasso because it's about to start back up next month, and one of the most famous scenes in all of Ted Lasso is when he is confronted, right, uh, with this narcissistic former owner of his soccer club, and he engages him around a, a dart game, and the guy doesn't ask him any questions. He just assumes that Ted is, a, is, a, is a, an idiot who can't really play, and so they begin to play, and Ted begins to beat him really badly. And Ted begins to talk to him in the midst of throwing these darts and winning the game. And he says, you know, if you really cared, you would have spent the time to ask questions. And he said, he quotes uh, from Walt Whitman, and he says, uh, uh, be curious and not judgmental, right? And that leads to this kind of understanding of, are we really being curious or are we just being judgmental? It's a really difficult thing in our culture. Almost everything we do is framed in the sense of immediately judging right, without really taking the time to learn, without really taking the time to understand, without really taking the time to be curious. And I want you all to know, the Bible is not a kind of a fortress by which you cannot ask these questions. God is not a God who does not invite you into these struggles. He warmly welcomes us into them. But we have to do it by being curious by asking real questions, by seeking to understand the scriptures on their own terms. And what Jesus says here and the entire Bible says is that as you do so, you will begin to see how the story all fits together. And through that, you will be led to the power of God and the wonder of what he has done in this world. And that is a beautiful thing. And so this is how Jesus answers the Sadducees' questions at the beginning. He draws them to this place of 
needing to understand and needing to approach this whole question in a different way. But he doesn't stop there. This leads us directly into a second situation and a second question. In verses 28 through 34, it says that one of the scribes, uh, Matthew 10 actually says that this is a, a Pharisee and a lawyer um, in the, one of the other Gospels. Uh, we're told that he heard Jesus disputing with the Sadducees and seeing that Jesus had answered them well, uh, in, in Matthew 10, it actually says that he had silenced them in this, and decided to ask him a question of his own. And, and we're told as well in Matthew that this too was in order to test Jesus. It wasn't just kind of a friendly question. He's testing Jesus as well. And this scribe, um, as we were told in Matthew, was a Pharisee. And you have to, in order to answer uh, or understand kind of what's going on here, it's important for us to back up once again and ask the question, okay, who were the Pharisees? It's a name that we commonly hear um, if you've been around some Christian circles, but oftentimes we don't really dig in to understand who they were and what the kind of the situation was. They were highly educated, conservative moralists of the time. Uh, they were the teachers of the law. That's why they're called a scribe here. Uh, and they kept it extremely strictly, even created other laws to keep themselves from actually approaching the laws that they possibly could break. A good example of this is they had something that was called a Sabbath day's journey. The scriptures say that we're supposed to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, they took that and said, well, in order for us to avoid the, even the possibility of not keeping the Sabbath day holy, they actually came up with a number of steps that you could take on a Sabbath day uh, and if you went over, even one step over that step uh, that they considered a Sabbath day journey, you were breaking the law and not honoring God. So they created a fence. They created a whole other law to keep themselves from even getting close to the original law that was there. And so you can get a sense of kind of how they approached this thing. Uh, they were very similar in many ways uh, to modern conservative fundamentalists, Christians, who holds solidly to the scriptures as God's authoritative word in this world, but are extremely law-minded and rules-oriented. I would be willing to bet that many of you grew up in churches like this, and I know this all too well. And the question that they come to Jesus with here in verse 28 is this, which commandment is the most important of all? So you understand, these are law-abiding people who take the law very seriously, take the commandments very seriously, and so he comes to Jesus and he asks him, well, okay, well, which one of these commandments is the most important? Now, in order to understand kind of the context of what he's talking about there, you need to know this question was a big source of controversy within the Pharisaical circles of that time and among the religious leaders that they had. And the Pharisees, being of the litigious bent, as I mentioned a minute ago, had actually combed the scriptures and determined that there were no less than 613 distinguishable laws in the Old Testament that God's people were supposed to keep in this world. Um, and as a result of this discovery and a desire to uh, be good people who could justify themselves before God and prove that they were righteous, right, um, they had uh, come to the point of having a large debate over which one of these rules and which one of these commandments was actually more important than others. And so this was a raging debate at the time. And I have to understand that. And as a result, the Pharisee in our passage thought that a good way to discredit Jesus was actually to draw him into this controversy and this debate and pin him down by getting him to take sides on this and to actually say that one law is more important than the other. Um, uh, and as he did so, he believed that Jesus would actually be discredited in this way. So you can get the context of there. But what we see here, once again, 
is that Jesus is not only able to escape the trap that he's led for him, he's also able to answer the question in such a way to show that the Pharisees, just like the Sadducees, had also failed to truly know the scriptures and the power of God. And this is his answer in verse 29. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these, Jesus says. In the book of Matthew, we are told that on these two commandments, Jesus goes on to say, all of the law and the prophets depends, or that Greek word actually means more closely to the idea of hanging. So all of the scriptures, all of the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, it's important to realize that Jesus' statement here is a combination of two Old Testament laws or commandments or passages, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And in this, he knits together uh, these two commands to provide us with a uh, a summation of what he believes to be the entire law. And what is the summation of the law's requirements, Jesus says? It's love. It's love. If you're surprised by that, I guarantee you that this scribe was surprised by that too, initially. John Calvin says that Jesus could have said that our first duty was to serve the Lord or to obey the Lord or to bow down to the Lord, or to fear the Lord, but he didn't. He said that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. But why love? Why is this the central theme? Why is this the most important commandment in all of Scripture? Well, according to the Bible, in the beginning of time, God, who himself is the very source of love, he's not just a loving God, we are told. He is the very definition of love, Right? created us in love, to love him as the primary object of our heart's desires and affections. And everything we are and we do and are designed to do in this world is actually tied to this idea of how do we respond to his love. Why are we to keep God's laws in this world? It's because we love God. Why are we to love our neighbors as ourselves? It's because we love God. And he loves us. Love of God is the foundation and the motivation for everything that we are in this world, we're told. And it's very important to understand this. We were not created to just do good deeds, i.e. just keep the law all the time, in order to earn God's love and his favor in this world. We were created to love God and out of that love for him, then to go and do good deeds. This is the context of all of the scriptures. And it's incredibly important to get that in your head and to understand that that is the flow of how everything fits together. But here's the rub. The Bible tells us that when we rebelled against God in the beginning of time, our hearts became twisted and darkened and bent in on ourselves, and we became the primary objects of our love and affections, we did, instead of of God. And as a result, we were separated from him and his love the very source and motivation for everything we're supposed to do in this world, and rendered completely unable to ever do or be good in this world. Have you ever wondered why the scriptures are so seemingly harsh around the idea of the universality of sin? 
It says that everybody's a sinner, right? Everything that we do is sinful in this world. Have you ever wondered how that could be? One of the most common questions I get from people that are not Christians is, well, I, you know, my neighbor does good things. I see good things that are done in this world. Um, I, when I do something nice for somebody, is that not good? How could that be sinful? How could that be wrong? Well, the reality is, is that according to the scriptures, a good deed done for the wrong reasons is not really a good deed at all. And the only right reason for doing anything good in this world is out of wholehearted love for God. Everything else, we're told, is sin. Therefore, God's primary interest is not in our moral records, although that's important. We can't just throw that out. What he really is interested in is our hearts and what we love. Because according to the scriptures, our moral behavior is just a side effect of our heart orientation. I'm going to say that again because it's really important to understand. According to the scriptures, our moral behavior is just a side effect of our heart orientation. The law of God was never meant to be a thing that could, we could use or do to save ourselves in this world. In fact, in a fallen world, it functions exactly the opposite way. We're told in the scriptures that God's law is actually there to show us that there's no way that we could ever do the law perfectly. We can never keep it the way that we're supposed to in order to be saved in this world. In our sinful fallen state, we can never keep the things that the Lord has called us to. We can never do enough or be enough or be good enough. We can never be good or holy or righteous. We can never earn God's favor by doing these things. And this, the Pharisee, had been led astray, Jesus says. For despite the Scripture's clear teaching on this truth, throughout all of Scripture, they had come to believe that they could pull themselves up by their bootstraps and actually keep God's law perfectly. They believed they could save themselves through human effort. And here's the scariest part in this passage. And it truly is scary when you really begin to understand it. Some of them, including the scribe in this passage, the Pharisee in this passage, had even come to believe that they could love God perfectly and by doing so earn their salvation in this world. Thus reducing love itself to just another legalistic tool for self-justification. Now I want you to notice something here. The scribe's response to Jesus' answer in verse 32, he agrees with Jesus, Right? And in return, Jesus acknowledges his wisdom in recognizing that love is the greatest commandment. Then he goes on to tell him that he is not far from the kingdom of God. You can imagine how puffed up he felt at that moment, right? When Jesus said this to him. In fact, in the other uh, gospels, you, you, we get a stronger sense of that. He, he was feeling good about himself in this moment. Jesus told him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And at first glance, it seems like Jesus is just supporting his view of this situation, right? And affirming this Pharisee's beliefs about the law. But I want you to notice something here. Jesus does not say, you're absolutely right, you're in, right? He says, you're near to the kingdom of God. And we all know that there's a big difference oftentimes between being near to something and being into something. Several years ago when I was watching the Olympics, I, I like watching... Uh, a number of things in the Olympics, but uh, in the Summer Olympics, uh, I really enjoy watching, you know, the dashes, the 100-yard dash, and see the, you know, the fastest people in the world run. 
And in the Winter Olympics, I oftentimes love watching the skiing events where you're kind of racing down these hills and coming in. And the interesting thing about both of those events is that uh, being near to winning and winning can come down to a hundredths or thousandths of a second, right? Something that you can't even measure on your own. We have to have a computer that actually takes pictures and determines exactly when people cross the line. It may be incredibly close, but there is a vast, vast ocean of difference between being near to something in that way and actually being the first or the winning and being in. And this fact is made clear in Luke's account of this event because Luke tells us that the Pharisee's motivation for asking this question was to justify himself in front of the crowd, to make himself look good. He may have intellectually known that love was the primary means and understanding of the commandment, but in reality, his actions prove that the primary motivation of his own heart was love for himself. D.A. Carson once said, in the scriptures, sterile religion or obedience is never regarded as adequate and disciplined altruism is not love. Love, in the truest sense, demands the total abandonment of the self to God. And what Jesus is doing here is exposing the fact that by turning into this kind of moralistic view of religion and love, the Pharisees had completely missed and been led astray by a false understanding of the world around them. We can't love perfectly anymore, Jesus said. We can't fill the law's requirements. We cannot save ourselves. We need a savior. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's not just trying to embarrass these two figures. He's not just trying to drive them away from him or scare them. He's trying to lead them to a place of understanding what is greater and what is more true than what they believe. And this leads us to the final question this morning. In verses 35 and 37, Jesus says, okay, you've asked your questions at this point. Now it's my turn to ask a question. And here's the question. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 110, he doesn't say that, but that's where it comes from, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself, in this, calls the Christ Lord. And if this is true, Jesus says, how could he possibly be David's son? And what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's leading them to this greater question that we talked about in the beginning and we've been talking about for months. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. Who is the Christ? He's the son of David, right? And how could the Christ be David's son if David himself, speaking by the Spirit, called him Lord, i.e. Yahweh is the word there, the word for God. And the implication is that the Pharisees and Sadducees had once again failed to know the Scriptures and God's power. For according to the Scriptures, the Christ is much more than a descendant of David or a political figure come to save them from a political situation that existed or the oppressors that they found in this world. He is the Lord. He is God himself who's come. And the only way that passage in the Old Testament makes sense is if you see it in the light of who Jesus really is. Now again, that argument for us may feel a little strained, 
But what we see in this passage is that they got it really quickly, and they understood exactly what he was talking about. And it led them to this understanding, or at least acknowledgement of this question. If, God, if Christ is God and Jesus is the Christ, then Jesus himself is God. And if that is true, then that changes everything about how I'm approaching this situation. It changes everything about how I approach the world and my life, the questions that I ask, how I think about what I struggle with, what my desires are in this world. It changes everything. And it leads us to this understanding, the hinge of this passage here, that the Sadducees had attacked Jesus because they smelled a conservative. And the Pharisees had attacked Jesus because they, they smelled a liberal. Liberals don't like how Jesus talks about the supernatural and about the resurrection and sin and judgment and how everybody needs to be uh, confessed and be converted in this world. There's an enormous amount of fear that exists there of looking foolish to the world around us and the culture around us. Conservatives don't like how Jesus emphasized our utter need and inability to save ourselves by our own efforts and by our own works in this world. And that we must love our neighbor as ourselves and we must do real justice in this world for the poor. There's a deep sense of pride that often exists there uh, and a, a deep-rooted understanding of self-righteousness that often comes out, right? But as Jesus shows us here, the gospel is, just, is not just a derivative of some human political system or human kind of understanding of philosophy, of how to approach life. And it's not just something in between these two either. The gospel is something entirely different. It's more liberal than the liberals, and it's more conservative than the conservatives. And the proof of this is found in the fact that Jesus himself has come into this world and proven the entire story of Scripture and how it fits together to be true. He's not here to just save us by freeing us from some oppressive human system, but by dealing with our ultimate need, and that is our own hearts. And the reason the religious leaders had misunderstood the scriptures and the power of God ultimately is because they had completely missed the point of the story. In the Gospels, we are told that the most incredible act of love the world has ever known is that God himself came into this world and fulfilled the law that we could never live on our own. And then he gave himself in the most loving sacrificial act that we could ever imagine to lay down his life so that our sins might be paid for and that we might be saved in him on the cross. And then he overcame death itself by being raised again from the dead. And he did that completely out of sheer love for you and me. And it highlights two movements, movements of the gospel that it's really important for us to wrap our heads around. You are more sinful than you could ever imagine. The Bible does not let us get away with that in any way, form, or fashion. We are more sinful than we could ever imagine this world. We're more broken than we could ever imagine this world. And what this does is it destroys pride, destroys that conservative tendency, right, to warp and mislead. And at the same time, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you could ever dare hope. And this destroys our fear, it destroys that liberal tendency that we often come to the scriptures with. And as we love him more and more, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And it leads us to rest in the scriptures and the great good news that it proclaims to us. In 1 John 4, it says this, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You can't know the scriptures unless you know 
the Christ. You can't know the true power of God unless you know the risen Jesus. For you can never truly love God or your neighbor unless you know his grace and his love in your life. When you truly grasp this wonderful truth in the face of Jesus and what he has claimed to be and do in this world, that knowledge of God's love for you will transform your heart and will drive you to serve him with your entire life. This is the power of God for our salvation in the world and for the life of the world as well. Ezekiel 36 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And Jeremiah 24 says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. It's a beautiful passage of what it means to approach the scriptures, approach our God, a God that has not abandoned us. He has not come down on us with a heavy hand. He invites us to come, to truly explore, to truly understand the wonder of the gospel. And he freely reveals that power to us through the work of Jesus Christ. And as we do so, we are promised that he will be at work in really wonderful and amazing ways to not only enlighten us, but also to more and more build us up into the people and drive us to be the people that he has called us to be in this world. It's a truly beautiful thing, right? But we can't do it on our own, as we've already seen in this passage. So let's pray that the Lord would do this work in our hearts. Father, we, we praise you that, um, that even in the midst uh, of our world where we get so uh, uh, swept away in different philosophies and different uh, political movements and different worldviews, that, Lord, that you have not abandoned us, that you've come and that you have entered in and that you have uh, revealed to us the truth of this world, Lord. And not only that, Lord, that you invite us to come and to question and to explore and to struggle, uh, Lord, that you uh, invite us to be angry, you invite us to be offended, um, but that you draw us even more deeper into your love. And I pray, Father, that that very love would be palpable this very day, that you would lavish it upon us, that your spirit would drive us to the wonder of your grace, and that through that, it would not lead us astray, but it would lead us to the power of God for the transformation of our lives and our community and our world. And in all these things, Lord, we pray that you would move. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.